This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, Disorderly Conduct, The Young Turks, Redacted Tonight with comedian Lee Camp, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolff, Activism from the Public Banking Institute, and Humorless Queers. If you listen to this show, uh, and have been listening for a while, you would know that HSBC is a criminal enterprise. You would know that because about a year ago, Sam had on the great Matt Taibbi to talk about a Senate committee investigation on HSBC that revealed that the bank laundered money for Mexican drug cartels, Al-Qaeda affiliates, uh, and all myriad of other bad actors washing their money. And now there's even more information about HSBC based off of a long-term investigation that, of course, shockingly, has not resulted in apparently any criminal charges. But we now know, and Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio wants to know why there isn't any criminal consequences for this. We know we now know that HSBC is, and this is from a report in The Guardian, HSBC is among a handful of banks to face criminal prosecutions in recent years, possibly. They've had to pay a few fines. We're not talking about anybody going to jail. For its role in a Swiss banking system that allowed depositors to conceal their identities and in some cases ta- uh, dodge taxes or launder ill-gotten cash. The report prepared by the Washington-based International Consortium of Investigative Journalists revealed for the first time a massive sweep of HSBC's private banking arm as of 2007 when it controlled $100 billion in assets. Now, a leading member of the Senate Banking Committee, Sherrod Brown, is calling on the U.S. government to explain why there hasn't been what action it took after receiving a massive cache of leaked data that revealed how HSBC, the world's second largest bank, helped the globe's wealthy launder billions worth of hidden tax money. Now, the organizations now are getting more clear. In addition to names that haven't been released, but we know high uh, politicians, entertainers, athletes, CEOs, we also know, um, and maybe some members of the show will actually feel more uh, sympathetic to HSBC after they hear this, but Vladimir Putin's regime, as an example, has laundered money through HSBC. We know even more criminal enterprises. We know even more terrorist organizations. We know even more uh, uh, corrupt governments around the world. And still, HSBC, again, has paid a few fines, but no one's in jail. There's no serious prosecution. And the point with all these stories, in addition to the fact that obviously it's just a stunning reminder of the utter corruption of global financial institutions, is not to just go after HSBC. It's to go after what HSBC represents. I talked about a couple of weeks ago what it would take to have an American Syriza. And what it would take is a politics that is singularly focused on a totally ossified and corrupt elite that play by an absolutely different set of rules. That's what Glenn Greenwald wrote a book about several years ago on two standards of justice. 
We have torturers and people who design global systems of torture walking around going into Sunday morning interviews and defending their crimes and calling for more of them. We have a global financial system that melted the economy, detonated people's lives, took away their homes, diminished their prospects. And now we have an incredibly prominent bank, which is essentially just a criminal organization with more civil office meetings. And in none of these cases are we seeing criminal prosecution. So the core issue again and again and again is corruption in the elites, no accountability, and massive double standards. That's the issue. So when you talk about HSBC, don't just talk about it as an example of this egregious company engaging in egregious conduct, which it is. Talk about how this represents everything we've seen over the last decades in American politics and Western politics. This is a fulfillment of the Milton Friedman fantasy. This is a deregulated world, a deregulated world where there's one set of rules for the ultra, ultra powerful and wealthy who are accumulating more power, more access than they ever had before, who whine and put all of their energy into making a type of politics where they get tax cuts and lower tax rates to begin with, in addition to engaging in global financial conspiracies to hide what little taxes they may actually have to pay in light of the tax rate that they've already rigged and lowered in their favor. So that their money is sloshing next to child killers from Mexican cartels and global terrorist syndicates that they go on TV and rant about and support atrocious policies, whether the Patriot Act or the drone program, to counteract even as they're doing business with the same banks. That's the issue. I've seen the weary miner scrubbing coal dust from his back And I've heard his children crying Got no coal to heat the shack But the banks are made of marble With a guard at every door And the vaults are stuffed with silver That the miner sweated for So let's talk about the second largest uh, bank in the whole world, HSBC, and some of their dirty laundry that just got aired last week. So it turns out that the Swiss banking arm of HSBC was doing a whole bunch of shady stuff and illegal stuff from the period of time from 2005 to 2007. So one of the things that they were doing was helping wealthy clients dodge taxes. Another thing that they were doing was doing business with diamond traffickers who happened to be on Interpol's most wanted list. All of this was in a huge amount of bank documents that were poured over by over 45 different journalist organizations all across the globe. Um, and all of this was reported on last week. Now, what's interesting about this is I might, you might have guessed this, but I have a listicle that's called Things You Can Get Away With If You Are a Giant Bank. And this is like a 300 page long listicle. Um, <laughs> but as you might imagine, what's already on this listicle is things like tank the economy, uh, issue wide scale predatory loans to communities of color, launder money to drug cartels, and violate international sanctions. Those are all things you can get away with if you are a giant bank. 
But after these leaks uh, that were reported on last week, I had to add a couple things to my list. And one of them was having arms dealers as your clients, doing business with people that have supplied electrical goods to Libya's secret nuclear weapons project, uh, telling wealthy clients just to go to Switzerland to withdraw $5 million worth of cash, uh, doing business with people on Interpol's most wanted list, and also getting a program about you aired on the BBC that is called the Banks of T- the Bank of Tax Cheats. Those are all things that you can get away with if you are a giant bank and you can still stay in business. Now, here's here's some of the nitty-gritty about what happened, right? So again, this is the period of time from 2005 to 2007. HSBC was basically reassuring every single wealthy client that they had that don't worry, we're not going to rat you out to the authorities. There was an Irish businessman who was like particularly paranoid about being ratted out to uh, Irish authorities. And that's not a coincidence because this dude was later convicted uh, by Ireland of tax fraud. But his HSBC person was like, listen, it's cool. We're not going to tell the authorities no matter what. Um, another, and, and just in case you think, you know what? I don't care. Big banks help these wealthy clients hide their money all the time. Big banks do money with arms dealers all the time. I get it. Like, how does this affect me? When banks do this kind of stuff and help people dodge taxes, um, there's a group called U.S. PERG. It stands for the U.S. Public Interest Research Group. And they do a report every year about how much extra amount of money you are paying in taxes because of banks helping clients do tax evasion. And they estimated that in 2014, the average U.S. taxpayer paid $1,259 more in taxes to make up for shortfalls resulting from tax havens. So this is affecting us all in a very real monetary way, but it's also sort of plays into the two-tier justice system and the unaccountability of big banks. Um, now, the other thing to note about this is you might be thinking, we know about this already, right? Didn't I hear about HSBC doing a bunch of bad stuff? Wasn't it money laundering for drug cartels or something? And you would be totally right. And terrorists. You would be and terrorists. Yes, you would be totally right. In 2012, uh, HSBC came to an agreement with the U.S. government under the direction of the Attorney General of Brooklyn, Loretta Lynch, who is now in the running for Attorney General of the United States, saying they will pay $1.9 billion to settle allegations that they violated sanctions against Iran and laundered money for Latin American drug cartels. What we found out because of these leaks is two years before the Department of Justice and the Attorney General came to that agreement, they found out about this other set of terrible stuff that HSBC did. So when they gave them the get out of jail free card for drug, uh, money laundering for drug cartel, they already knew about tax evasion and doing business with arms dealers. The final piece of information that kind of ties this all up in a bow is if you remember Eric Holder got into a lot of trouble for basically saying that banks were too big to jail. He said that in response to a question by Senator Chuck Grassley about the HSBC settlement. So I have to wonder to myself, when Eric Holder basically said, yeah, the banks are too big to jail, was he thinking in his head, listen, Chuck Grassley, I know you're pissed off about this money laundering thing, but you don't even know the half of it. You don't know what I know about tax <laughs> evasion. Um, so this was a big media splash, and uh, and basically the public finally knew 
what authorities all across the world have known for at least four years. Um, and and uh, and so the you you um, you brought up Chuck Grassley asking questions about it. It's always a little disingenuous when the Republicans go after the banks, or not always, but usually because they're they're you know such corporatists. But um, they're also uh, taking this factoid that you gave out about Loretta Lynch uh, into account with the debates around her nomination to be the next Attorney General. Is that right? Yeah, and I think look, I mean, say what you will, I do think that the Republicans are often like concerned trolling about this stuff, but Chuck Grassley is pretty good consistently on things like whistleblower stuff. And look, you know, I do think that we have talked about on this show before our concerns with Loretta Lynch as attorney general. And we talked to journalist David Day and about those concerns uh, in a prior show. And so I do think that there is very much reason to ask the question, should Loretta Lynch really be the attorney general if she went ahead and did this settlement with HSBC back in 2012? Um, and, you know, I do think that the Republicans are just holding up her nomination to score political points, but I doesn't. I don't think that that means that we shouldn't be at least on their side when they ask these particular questions about HSBC, which is what they are doing right now. Um, totally. Do, do these do these revelations give them more fodder against Lynch? Like doing what you said about like um, coming to this settlement with the advanced knowledge. Like is is Lynch one of the people who knew about this stuff beforehand? Well, and, and right. Did the settlement anyway? That's what we don't know. What's been reported is that just U.S. authorities knew about this in 2010 and so it's sort of hard to know who those U.S. authorities are but it stands to reason that an attorney general out of Brooklyn that is overseeing a deferred prosecution agreement over money laundering should have been informed about it so the question is either if she didn't know why the hell didn't they tell her and if she did know why the hell didn't she go a little bit harder against this bank that she also had all of this other dirt on um so we don't know the extent of who exactly knew and when they knew we just knew that somebody knew and if they didn't you know run it down the chain to loretta lynch and others like her like that's its own set of problems so for example senator sherrod brown this was the very first thing that he seized on when these leaks were uh made public was I want to know who at the DOJ knew. I want to know what they did. Why didn't they do more? He happened to be having a hearing the next day where a official from the Federal Reserve was there. So he took that opportunity to be like, hey, Federal Reserve, did you know about this? And what did you do? And they were kind of like, we didn't do anything, but we'll get back to you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So people are all over this story. And it just makes the federal government look really Bad. It makes them look like a bunch of clowns. Either a bunch of captured. Hey, like, hey, hey! Don't don't diss on clowns. A bunch of clowns. Don't diss on clowns that, like that. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me ask you a question. So, so this this reporting all came out like last week or two weeks ago, and there was a big brouhaha in the media about it. Um, would you talk about how much, like, w- what sort of wide coverage it got, and what the response was to it, and and what has happened in the time since then? So this was reported in the Guardian, the BBC ran that Bank of Text Sheets program. Um, lots of people did roundups. And the uh, the other thing that's happened since is there's been a lot of different feeder stories. And one of the most, I think, interesting feeder stories has been about a British newspaper called The Telegraph. And basically what happened is they killed a story, a negative story about HSBC because HSBC was such a big advertiser 
for the Telegraph. Uh, specifically, the story was about British Muslims who got letters out of the blue from HSBC saying that their accounts had been closed and they didn't allow them to appeal that decision. They just totally shut them out. And so the Telegraph, you know, this journalist at the Telegraph was working on that story and then it just got totally killed because HSBC was one of their biggest advertisers. And so there's sort of this question about like, you know, who are the outlets that are running this story and who are the outlets that aren't running this story? Um, and so that's one thing that's come about in the wake of this is just to show that the power of HSBC does not just extend to, you know, maybe making kittens out of prosecutors in the United States. It also extends to certain members of the media, at least the Telegraph. Um, and the other thing that's just kind of fun. Yeah, not, not, not only, not only are they too big to fail if they run up against insolvency questions, and not only are they too big to jail because that would, according to Eric Holder, bring down the whole financial system. In fact, it seems that they're too big to report on if they have, uh, been, you know, financing enough of the advertising revenue of a, a given news outlet. Exactly. Um, and then just one last piece on this, and this is actually kind of my favorite piece of this whole story. Um, so part of the uh, reporting that was done about this story came from the um, International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, and they gave HSBC a heads up when they were first working on the story, and HSBC's response was, you shouldn't have those documents, destroy those documents. And then they were like, <laughs> um, okay. And then they kept doing their reporting, and then they went back to HSBC, and when it was clear that they <laughs> weren't going to do that, HSBC was like, okay, okay, okay. We made mistakes in the past, and we've done all this work, and we're so much better now, which is hilarious, right? It's like, first they like try to be all <laughs> tough, and they're like, destroy those documents, and then they're like, okay, 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 it's true, but we're better now. And then they actually issued a formal apology that was run in all of these different British newspapers on Sunday, where they said, this is um, a quote from HSBC's chief executive, Stuart Gulliver, we must show we understand that the societies we serve expect more from us. We therefore offer our sincerest apologies. So they go from, shut up, journalists, you can't report on us, destroy our documents, to, we are so sorry, general public, we suck. It's hard for me to say I'm sorry. I just want you to stay. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. Now, Jamie Dimon, he's uh, got a pretty good, I'm going to show you the amount of profit his bank is making. He's the CEO of J.P. Morgan. He was one of the most respected bankers. President Obama, not Bush, Obama, considered making him secretary treasury. Now, uh, he's also been in a bit of trouble. I'm also going to explain that to you for all the different crimes that J.P. Morgan has committed. 
somewhat admitted to and paid enormous fines for. Uh, but he's gotten away with all of that. There's no banker that was arrested at J.P. Morgan. They paid a small percentage of their profits, and they were done with it. And in fact, he personally lobbied Congress recently to make sure that the banks were further deregulated and could gamble with depositor money, and that the government would back it up, would bail them out again. And he won. But apparently, under Jamie, according to Jamie Dimon, in this world that he runs... As Dick Durbin famously said, number two senator for the Democrats, he said, frankly, the banks run this place. They own this place, referring to Capitol Hill. But what does Jamie Dimon says? He says, the banks are under assault. Oh, my God. Are you guys going to be okay? I mean, the victim mentality here, you know how the conservatives love to say, oh, liberals love to play the victim. No, these guys love to play the victim. Oh, poor me. I only made billions of dollars this year at my bank. But yet, at some point, Elizabeth Warren criticized me. Oh, my feelings are offended. He says, now, let me explain to you how much money they made just recently. J.P. Morgan Chase earned $4.9 billion in the fourth quarter of 2014. The company announced on Wednesday, down from a year ago, but capping what CEO Jamie Dimon called a record year for the biggest U.S. bank by assets. When they make $5 billion in a quarter of a year, it's a little down from last year. But overall for the year, record profit. So how are you under assault? You just made a record profit and you said it. He uh, goes on to uh, explain, or the article does. The bank earned $39.7 billion in net income over those same two years, okay? Two years, they made $40 billion. Uh, now, uh, he says, Diamond does, in the old days, you dealt with one regulator when you had an issue, maybe two. Now it's five or six. It makes it very difficult and very complicated. Are you going to be okay? As I was making my $39 billion, I had to check with a couple other guys. Oh, my God. My heart breaks for you, man. Now, why did he have to check with all those regulators? Well, let's find out. The biggest U.S. bank by assets has had its fair share of trouble with regulators in recent years. In the fourth quarter, J.P. Morgan paid $1.1 billion to settle charges by the U.S. and foreign regulators that its traders had manipulated currency markets. See, you might need regulators on the watch if you're manipulating currency markets, which is wildly illegal. That's why you pay the $1.1 billion fine. The reality is you should have gone to jail. That's where you belong. And you're still crying? Oh, my God, I made all these record profits. I had to give a nickel and a dime back, a small percentage of what I made. Oh, I'm so under assault. I had to check with a couple of regulators. But you think $1.1 billion is a problem? That was just in one quarter. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, how does he explain it? I love this quote, too. Obviously, companies make mistakes. We try to resolve it. We try to fix it. We admit it. No, you don't. You say you're the victim. A couple of mistakes. Let's find out what a couple of mistakes are. In the past two years, J.P. Morgan has paid out $14 billion in settlements and fines related to the London whale trading losses, manipulating key interest rate benchmark, LIBOR, issuing bad mortgages that helped to lead to the financial crisis. Those are all separate scandals. Oh, we manipulated the interest rates for the whole wide world for our own profit. Oops. 
So many people should have gone to jail for that. They're manipulating the interest rates on your mortgage, on your cars, on everything. You lose, they win. They took the money home. They give, they, I mean, the $14 billion in settlements and fines. They're not paying the $14 billion. If they didn't do it, they got an army of lawyers they would love to use. They're, do, they're paying it because they did do it. It's that get out of jail free card. They made $40 billion anyway over the last two years. You just give a small percentage right back to the government and you keep breaking those laws. And, and one of the laws that they broke was on fraud. That led to the 2008 economic collapse. We lost 8 million jobs because of that. But Jamie Dimon says the banks are under assault. I'm so sorry that we bothered you by pointing out all the different laws that you broke while you were making your grotesque profits off the backs of the American people. And it is, because it's taxpayer money that they're gambling with, and it's taxpayer money that bailed them out, and now because of the laws that they have gotten through this Congress, taxpayer money that will bail them out again after they crash again. But apparently, we're bothering them too much. You have got to change the system, man. As long as these guys are allowed to buy the politicians, they will buy them all day long. Conservatives, you're worried about corrupt politicians, you're right. You're worried about big government, in this case, you are right. You think those guys are bought, you're right. Who bought them? Jamie Dimon bought them. The banks bought them. They did it for a rational reason, because they make more money that way. Now they have the gall to cry about it. You gotta go to Wolfpack, man. You gotta go to wolf-pack.com. If you don't fight back, they're gonna rob us all day and all night. Wolfpack is the answer, man. You get money out of politics, then you can run a bank all day long. I, don't, I want them to run a bank. I want them to make a profit. But I don't want to do it at our expense. I don't want them to do it with our money, backed up by us. You want to gamble with your own money? Have at it, hoss. But the reality is, if our politicians weren't so incredibly corrupt, that man would have been in jail already. So you'll excuse me if I'm not shedding a tear for Jamie Dimon. Wolf-Pack.com evidence that an enemy of the people of the United States has been paying their foot soldiers millions of dollars to infiltrate the US government, snatch up high-level positions, and never mention the fact that they're being paid to do so like mercenaries, like Manchurian government agents. They are to government what Blackwater was to military, and they're accepted into top government posts as unquestionably as Christopher Walken accepts movie roles. <laughs> me, uh, me thinks Chris
Christopher Walken does not regale his grandchildren with his time on the sets of Geely or Balls of Fury. <laughs> this particular enemy of our country has kicked millions out of their homes and stolen the pensions of millions more. I'm talking, of course, of Wall Street bankers. You thought I was going to say something not as bad like North Korea, but no. It's grimy, sleazy, oozing, posse, ranting, infected bankers. It's come out recently that Wall Street Goliaths like Citibank, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley are trying to keep hidden their practice of paying executives multi-million dollar awards for entering government service. Millions to enter top government positions so that they can have inside men like termites eating away at regulation and slowly destroying anything that might allow more economic equality rather than putting all the nation's wealth in the hands of a tiny number of people. How tiny? Sometimes it takes a mad scientist, a modern-day Scrooge of truth, to really explain it. The Walmart company, of course, started by Sam Walton. His children, one family, now own more wealth than do the bottom 30% of the American people. One family. I dare you to say that fact to yourself 20 times and not look like him. All right. I mean, I guess this scheme shouldn't surprise us, though. Why else would Jack Lew, former top executive at Citibank, decide to be a Treasury Secretary? It's not like the pay was enough for him. What he earns as Treasury Secretary is what he used to spend on having his toe knuckles waxed when he was at Citibank. It's nothing to him. That amount is nothing to him. It's like the truth to Brian Williams. It is nothing to him. Why would I insult Brian Williams for his little helicopter lie when our entire media infrastructure has lied to us into has lied us into wars in Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Iraq again, Syria, Yemen, etc., and lied us into massive NSA surveillance state? Why would I have the nerve to go after Brian fucking Williams? I did it for a joke. Now ask the same question of every mainstream media outlet. Why are they doing it? So, bankers! Back to bankers. Antonio Weiss, who's currently serving as counselor to Jack Lew, used to be an investment banker at Lazard and acknowledged that he would be paid $21 million for joining the government. Basically, Lazard said to him, go pretend you give a crap about public service for a few years, make sure our smells like roses while you're there, and we'll pay you $21 million. Not only should this practice be illegal, it's also a bigger conflict of interest than a wood supply store owned by termites. Over the last week, one of the big news stories had to do with uh, the Democratic Party here in the United States. It came out in a way it hadn't before for quite a while uh, with a progressive economic proposal. 
Uh, it is a little bit strange, the timing, since it comes immediately after the Democrats have lost any ability to get such a proposal through either House of Congress, since they are now the minority party in both of the Houses of Congress. What they put forward, however, is clearly designed to show the kind of thing they want to be known for, even if they can't get it, and even if they were silent about it during the time when they might have gotten it. They call it, and the press calls it, the Robin Hood tax. We've talked about it before, but I want to go over it again so it is clear in everyone's mind. Why the Robin Hood tax? Well, because it claims to take from the rich and give to the poor. The real technical name for this is called the Financial Transactions Tax, and it is mostly associated with a Nobel Prize winning economist here in the United States named James Tobin. And for reasons of disclosure, I should explain that Mr. Tobin was my teacher of economics at Yale University, uh, and I learned about the tax from him initially. Here's the idea. When we go to the store and buy a shirt or a toaster or a coffee machine, we know that we typically pay the price of the item and then a sales tax, a portion of money that goes to the government that's a percentage of the price of the article we buy. And the idea of the financial transactions tax is this. If the average person has to pay a sales tax every time he or she makes a purchase of a commodity, why shouldn't the same apply to the people who buy and sell stocks and bonds and derivatives and securities of all different kinds? In other words, they should have a sales tax too. The sales tax across the United States for consumer goods ranges from 35 to 4% on the one end, all the way up to 85 to 9%, depending on where you live and how high the sales tax is. The Democrats proposed a financial transactions tax at the rate not of 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 percent, but at one-tenth of one percent. In other words, tiny. Uh, the original proposal of Professor Tobin was for one-half of one percent. And the idea is this would tax the bankers, the insurance companies, the stockbrokers, the people who do the bulk of the buying and selling of financial instruments. And it would take from these folks who are the richest amongst us, because they're the ones who have these things and they're the ones who trade in these things, it would take from them a significant amount of money, the hope is, and use it for the general well-being. That's where it gets that name, Robin Hood, because it taxes from the upper income. Of course, it shouldn't be called Robin Hood, because they should have been paying a reasonable sales tax all along. And indeed, in American history, at various times, we've had one. But in the go-go neoliberal period of the last 20, 30 years, it was pushed out of existence because, like everything else, the rich wanted to become richer, and getting rid of this tax, and I'll be telling you more about this sort of story, uh, was just a bump along the road. So here come the Democrats, uh, with no chance of getting it passed, announcing that they are interested in a Robin Hood tax, a tax on financial transactions. 
In Europe, they're discussing it as well. It's a bit further along in Europe as an idea because the Europeans are organized so that their trade unions and their left-wing political parties have been pushing uh, in this era of mass anger at bankers and other manipulators of securities for having brought us the crisis, for having gotten the bailouts that the governments were ready to give. Uh, there's a feeling they could at least pay some taxes uh, of the sort they should have been all along. But both in Europe and here in the United States, the chances actually now look quite slim for this being passed. And I thought you'd enjoy the rationale. The Europeans say we shouldn't do that because if we do, then these transactions that we would like to tax uh, won't happen in Europe anymore. People will, with the aid of a computer, make those transactions in the United States to escape a tax if we levy one here in Europe. And at the same time, the Americans opposed to it are saying, gee, we shouldn't do that here in the United States, because if we do, the transactions will move to Europe. So very conveniently, the Europeans don't do it for fear that the Americans might not, and the Americans don't do it for fear that the Europeans might not, with the end result that neither one does, and the financial industry has escaped its share of taxation yet one more time. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the glen. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with his band of men. Feared by the bad, loved by the good. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Robin Hood. He called the greatest archers to a tavern on the green. They vowed to help the people of the king. They handled all the trouble on the English country scene and still found plenty of time to sing. So here in the United States of America, uh, we are told over and over again, well, you can't go after the big bankers. My God, that would affect the economy so much. No, no, no. You have to understand that they're too big to jail. And our Justice Department has said things along those lines. They've been very, very clear in congressional testimony. They've said, well, if we go after the bankers and we put them in jail, that could affect the banks. And the banks are so important to the global economy that it could screw up the economy, so we cannot go after the main executives of the banks. How they could admit that is amazing, even if they believe that. I'm amazed that they said it in public. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're never going to jail them. They can do whatever they want. They just pay us a little toll along the way. They, you know, take billions of dollars. They take these outsized risks. And when things collapse, we give them billions. Through the Fed, we give them trillions. And then later, we'll find them, and they'll give us a tiny percentage back. Ha <laughs> ha, isn't that funny? Well, it turns out there is a different way to do things. In Iceland, they also had a collapse. Now, instead of rewarding the bankers, what they did was they punished the bankers. And the first thing they did was, by the way, they nationalized the banks. Another thing we were told, you can't do that, oh my God, socialism, communism, the whole economy will collapse. Guess what, the economy of Iceland did not collapse, it got better. Recently we gave you a story about how Iceland's economy is significantly better than the rest of Europe. It turned out not only could you do it, but it led to success, it led to better economics. The people of Iceland didn't suffer, they gained through that process. But they had one uh, piece of unfinished business, and that was the executives themselves. Well, that business just got finished. So now let me tell you about what happened. Iceland's Supreme Court has upheld convictions of market manipulation for four former executives of the failed Kaputhing Bank in a landmark case that the country's special prosecutor said it showed 
it was possible to crack down on fraudulent bankers. Damn straight. So they went after the bankers, and it turns out you could convict them. And those convictions could stand up in court when you look at that. Now, are they really going to put them in jail? How long are they going to put them in jail for? Well, let's find out. All right, God help me with these Icelandic names. <laughs> Hrydar Mar Sigurdsson, Kaputhing's former chief executive, former chairman Sigurdur Einarsson, former chief executive Kaputhing, Luxembourg uh, Magnus Gudmundsson, and Olafur Olafsson, the bank's second largest shareholder at the time, were all sentenced on Thursday to between four and five and a half years. In America, that's nearly unimaginable that you take a banking executive, the head of the company, the second largest shareholder, you say, you are going to federal prison for four to five years. But why is it unimaginable? They crashed the U.S. economy, the global economy, the art bankers did. In Iceland, their bankers crashed their economy. It, in, in America, it costs minimum of eight million jobs and untold suffering. And they did it based on fraudulent schemes. They knew that those uh, financial products that they had put together were set to explode. We know they knew it because we have the internal emails. We had them making fun of the people they sold it to, saying it's a pile of crap that we're selling them. That would be the definition of fraud, right? But not only that, we had the records of them betting against their own financial products because they know that they set them to explode. That's fraud. That's fraud. Of course you should go to jail for four to five years. You mug a guy on the street, you're going to jail for four to five years. You mug the entire global economy of trillions of dollars, and you don't go to jail? Well, Iceland proved to us that you can do it a different way. And yes, of course you could put bankers in jail, and your economy won't be worse. It'll be better off. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capital. Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once, and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal, it will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether, or at least consuming in a subversive way. The New York Times is reporting that prosecutions for crimes leading to the 2008 financial collapse have finally concluded with all the ferocity of Hugh Hefner sluggishly limping across the finish line at a present-day Playboy Mansion orgy. So basically envision a sad death rattle followed by a puff of smoke. 
in what was considered the final attempt to hold someone accountable for the 2008 collapse, there was, ten, there was a $10 million settlement of accounting fraud charges against Ernst & Young for its role as auditor of Lehman Brothers. So basically, Ernst & Young helped a lot of people take part in one of the largest thefts ever in history. Millions of Americans will never regain what they lost. And in return, Ernst & Young had to fork over an afternoon's paycheck and say they're sorry. Oh, wait, they didn't say they're sorry. They came out with a statement saying there were no findings of wrongdoing. Yeah, none whatsoever. We just paid $10 million as a thank you to the Attorney General for the quality time we spent together over the past few years being prosecuted. But the New York Times revealed the silver lining here. There is a positive. For companies, the public's dissatisfaction with the lack of signature cases from the financial crisis means increased pressure to cooperate for Wall Street, lest they be made an example of a new get-tough policy by the Justice Department. New York Times nailed it and managed to cram a lest in there. <laughs> we have scared the out of Wall Street by letting them get away with their crimes, right? Makes perfect sense. Nothing makes big banks and corporations shake in their boots like not imprisoning them for their comically villainous actions. Because doing that makes Americans totally dissatisfied. Ooh, ooh, I know. You know what would uh, really put the fear of God in Wall Street? Let's let them collapse the economy again and then bail them out again and then not prosecute them again. That would really them up, right? Would... It's, the same, it's the same thing police do with, with rioters, you know? If someone sets a cop car on fire, they don't arrest him because the dissatisfaction of the public is punishment enough. <laughs> he'll, he'll think twice next time. Shame, boatloads of shame, day after day, more of the same. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, public banking. Neither the concept of pooling money to benefit a larger community, nor the notion of holding that money in a publicly owned and run institution is novel. We collect taxes to fund schools and roads, projects we couldn't accomplish individually, and the state of North Dakota has operated its own financial institution for nearly a century. So why is Bismarck the only place in the country with a publicly owned bank? The movement to expand public banking is gaining momentum. Gar Alperovitz, the economist behind the new system project we featured just a few weeks ago, described what has created renewed interest in founding more public banks in an op-ed for Bill Moyers. Quote, Recognition is also growing of the undue influence that private corporate finance tied to Wall Street rather than anchored to Main Street has on our communities. Most Americans understand that regulation can only go so far and that it has a tendency to unravel in the face of corporate pressure. Starting at the local level, public banking and related strategies seek to transform the current system toward one in which banking is managed as a public utility rather than a global casino where taxpayers pick up the tab for private losses, unquote. 
banking as a public utility, a public good, rather than a playground for the uber-rich could quickly revolutionize who has access to capital for starting businesses, buying homes, and funding worthwhile projects that benefit entire communities. We already know that locally spent dollars fuel local economies. Public banks work in a similar way by not funneling a percentage of the tax dollars housed in those institutions off to the CEOs of Wells Fargo and Citibank. Efforts are underway in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and the state of Vermont to found public banks. The Vermont plan would authorize up to 10% of the state's cash balance, approximately $350 million, to be available for investment in local enterprise. Imagine what that could do for a state with just 600,000 people. If this concept is exciting to you, the Public Banking Institute is looking for volunteers, members for their chapters in more than 20 cities across the country, and support for local initiatives in Santa Fe, Philadelphia, Seattle, Vermont, and California. Visit publicbankinginstitute.org and click on the Take Action tab for volunteer opportunities, events, and info to share on your networks. Then keep an eye out for more from the Next System Project, which the Public Banking Institute partners on, and new ways to get involved with reclaiming public assets for public use. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If creating a system where banks serve the public good matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the Public Banking Institute via social media so that others in your network can get educated and involved. I've seen my brothers working throughout this mighty land. I've prayed we'd get together and together make a stand. Then we might own those banks of marble with a guard at every door. And we would share those vaults of silver that we so Alexis, last night I was on a plane coming home from Mexico and I was on a JetBlue flight, so I was watching television and I saw on the National Geographic channel this program called Border Wars, which was probably the most horrific TV show I've ever seen. And, and on it, there was this clip of uh, a bunch of drug cops, including some federal agents driving around a town, I think it was Laredo, Texas, talking about how much, you know, gang activity and drug activity there is. And they see some guys standing out on the street and they say, ah, oh, those are drug dealers. So they all swarm over and they, the guy runs inside his house and they chase him in the house. They don't have a warrant. They have nothing. They search his house without a warrant they find a bunch of weed in his closet and huge boxes that he had packed like he was going to ship them and these guys are so self-congratulatory oh my god we caught such a big fish we're going to get all this marijuana off the street and this is a felony this guy's going to prison for a long time laughing it up so all these banks were just charged with felonies, right? And that that's how it went down. It was similar. <laughs> right, right. So it would be similar if before they went in, they sat the guy down for a bunch of cookies and coffee <laughs> and were like, so we're going to bust you. We need you to plead guilty for it. But we're going to make sure that there are absolutely no consequences in your life whatsoever. And in fact, it won't even really be, uh, you know, no one will even care and it won't affect you in any way. So given that you'll just sign this piece of paper so that we can look good as law enforcement. Does that sound good to you? So who are these banks (laughs) and what happened? 
So just to be confusing, I'm sure uh, this is a tactic that they use in sort of, you know, your area, Cade. Um, they kind of combine two convictions together just to, like, add maximum confusion. So there were four banks that were charged with manipulating currency prices and one bank that was charged with manipulating interest rates. Um, but the long and the short of it is J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Barclays, Royal Bank of Scotland, and UBS all pled guilty to felony charges of you can just think of it as price manipulation um and they were caught because the traders that were doing it were doing it in uh, talking about it in online chat rooms and they weren't just any online chat rooms they were chat rooms that they called uh that they named the cartel there was a chat room that they named the mafia um and they said things in these chat rooms like if you ain't cheating you ain't trying um, so they These basically definitely sound like dudes who are terrified of what would happen oh, if they got caught. Absolutely. <laughs> and it should be noted that this conduct began in 2007 before the financial crisis. It continued through the financial crisis. It happened during the passage of the Wall Street Reform Act, and it finally ended in 2013 when they started to be investigated. So these guys watched the whole world melt down, and they were like, meh, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. <laughs> they thought it was hilarious, um, I'm sure. No big deal. So the Justice Department, you know, made this big announcement. And just to play devil's advocate for a minute and, like, let me pretend to be the Department of Justice, what the Department of Justice would say is, listen, America, you were bitching and moaning to me forever because all we ever did was indict uh, banks that were international banks, right? Not American banks. So then we got, you know, some indictments for American banks. But then you were bitching and moaning to me because none of them admitted guilt. So now here we are, we're getting them to admit guilt. You're going to say thank you, right? And of course, America says what America always says, which is we don't care because no one is going to prison. So why should we care? But what's Wait, even but hold more on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Hold on. So the, this, yeah. these are felonies. So J.P. Morgan, yes. like if if I'm convicted of a felony, I can't vote. In many states, I can never vote again, right? Mm-hmm. So J.P. Morgan can't give money to political candidates or PACs anymore, right? Because they're a you felony. know, it's funny. It's funny that you should say that. There is a bill by Representative Keith Ellison uh, that is basically does just that. As far as I know, there are no co-sponsors to it. Uh, which is uh, <laughs> maybe tells you a lot, but oh, um, poetic. yeah. So there is a bill to make that true. It is not law. So no, they are you know they are felons. They are convicted felons. They are allowed to donate money to super PACs. They are allowed to lobby. Um, you know maybe there could be a new bill that also bans them from lobbying. If people are interested in the bill, by the way, it is HR. 450, um, the corporate uh, accountability bill. Um, I and, love Keith uh, Ellison, It's a man, good idea. Great. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. sorry. That's I- not the name of the bill. The name of the bill is Protect Democracy from Criminal Corporations Act. <laughs> that's, a pretty, <laughs> that's great. It's a pretty good name for a bill. Um, so, yeah, you know, feel free to write your member of Congress and tell them to sign on to uh, HR 450. But in the meantime, what's even more crazy about this is not only are they felons who still get to donate money, not only do they still get to lobby, they 
insisted, and we know this because of news reports, that before they agreed to plead guilty to get the Department of Justice this wonderful you know, headline, um, they said, you need to make sure that all of the consequences are eliminated. So what I mean by consequences is when a bank breaks the law and is charged with a felony, there, the law says that there are certain automatic penalties that Mm -hmm. kick in. There are certain disqualifications that are immediately triggered upon a criminal conviction. And some of them are really bad consequences, and some of them are really just extra paperwork. But uh, they were all waived by... Oh, man. uh, Nobody wants to do extra paperwork. It's not like they could pay to do that anyway. Give me a break, Alexis. By the Securities and Exchange Commission. So I just want to go through really quickly the four automatic penalties that these banks were supposed to face. Um, not every bank faced all of them, but um, at least one of or two of the banks faced uh, each one of these. So number one, disqualification from managing mutual funds. So that's a really actually severe consequence. So JP Morgan, RBS, Citigroup, and UPS were all at risk of being automatically disqualified from managing any sort of mutual fund or exchange traded funds. So they would basically have to shut down their kind of like retirement uh, money management business. So that would have been a very serious consequence. That was waived. Then there are some sort of more minor consequences that were also waived. So one of them is there's this special status that they get called well-known seasoned issuer. And if you're a really big bank that's covered by a lot of analysts that trades in very high volumes, the SEC basically thinks, okay, people are watching you. They know you. Like There are a lot of eyes on you. So when you want to raise more capital, you don't have to come to us and get approval first. You can just do it. But if you're convicted of a crime, you are automatically disqualified from that status. They waved that away. That's really just extra paperwork, extra phone calls. But they were like, no, that's too harsh. We're going to make sure you don't have to do that. Um, Another thing is when you make uh, earnings projections, right, like these banks go and they call their investors and they say, we think next quarter we're going to make a bunch of money because we are investing in this new widget or whatever. Or we have this great new idea. Um, So we're going to make some forward-looking statements about how much you know, buckets of money we think we're going to make next quarter off of the backs of the American poor, right? (laughs) Um, Because no one can predict the future, you can't verify forward-looking statements. And so what the law provides is immunity from lawsuits if people feel like they say stuff that is forward-looking that's untrue, right? Because the idea is it's the future, you don't know. So the law gives them immunity, If you break the law, you are convicted of a felony, you do not have that immunity anymore. So all of your statements are subject to the normal liability standards for fraud. And in effect, what this would have probably meant is these banks wouldn't be able to, like, make, you know, earnings projections, at least for a period of time. They wouldn't have been able to say things about the future. Again, not a huge consequence, waived. And then the final thing has to do with uh, another way that the banks can raise money is they can do private securities offerings and they can raise unlimited amounts of money doing that. uh, They would have been disqualified from some of these private securities offerings. That consequence was also waived. But to put this into kind of plain English, you think about what happens when an individual gets a felony conviction. Cade, you mentioned it, right? You can't vote in certain states. There are check boxes on a lot of employment forms in states that don't ban the box that say, do you have a prior conviction, right? 
you might not be able to find a job because you're a felon. These banks, in order to plead guilty to felonies, said, I will only do it if you eliminate all of the consequences. So what we have effectively done is made guilty pleas by banks completely symbolic. And we have said we can get guilty pleas from banks when we ensure there are no consequences to those guilty pleas. Jay, this is David from Cincinnati. I'm responding to Chris from Colorado Springs regarding the education episode. He asks, what is the solution? What is the progressive alternative? So let me set this up and keep in mind I'm being brief here. We test because we want to measure students and their teachers, right? But it turns out all the test really does accurately is measuring the socioeconomic position of the student. You've no doubt heard the reports on the programs that house the homeless, solving crime and emergency service problems through direct action, with high rates of success. You've most also likely heard about the programs that provide drugs and safe administration to the addicted, solving crime and health problems with high rates of success. So how about the students? We have scientific studies that show the strong correlation of family support to student performance. To put it simply, Students who perform poorly are overwhelmingly disadvantaged by coming from families that are in trouble. They're too busy surviving, or working, or simply stressed out by poverty. My progressive answer is to put these ideas together. By addressing the root support problems commonly shared by our students, I am confident we can change the outcome of these metrics. The families that exhaust themselves surviving and dealing will be in a less depleted situation freeing both their cognitive and time resources to support the students. The simple answer to this is guaranteed minimum income. I even suggest an enrolled and learning student bonus. Now, I could go on for some time extolling the virtues of this idea, but there is no time here. I advocate that the subject deserves an entire episode of its own. As for tests, test them if you must, but only use the results for de-individualized measurement. Use them as an indicator to the regions that need extra subsidies for the students and overall progress. No more than that. Thanks for the opportunity to discuss, and of course, keep up the good work. Hi Jay, this is Jim in the Detroit suburbs, and I find it easier to understand some of the reactions to loss of privilege by remembering that a loss of unconscious privilege feels like oppression. That doesn't make it so, but it does help me to understand the reactions. Thank you. Hello, Jay. Chuck in Salt Lake City. Calling in again about uh, education. I keep hearing um, from you and from callers that the funding of schools by property tax is a big problem in this issue. I'd sure like to hear more about that because, you know, I know that the origin of that uh, came from the logic that those who own property were in a better position to pay for the education of the society and that we could remove the burden of the pay, of paying for education from the poor by paying for it with property tax. 
and I think it's really interesting. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, I never, ever heard a liberal complain about this. Uh, and more, uh, it's almost, you know, from my perspective, it's kind of an unholy alliance with the hardcore conservatives who like to complain to me all the time about how they're, you know, tired and I don't, I don't have any kids. Why am I paying for schools? And so I'd sure like to hear you or some other callers explain in more depth to me and to others, well, you know, how they would pay for it. Um, are we going to do this with a sales tax that everybody's going to pay? Are we going to do this with an income tax that traditionally are very, very difficult to, uh, to get passed through especially conservative uh, legislatures in states? Are we going to do this with uh, federal funding, which <laughs> clearly is the, you know, the genesis of all the complaints that we've been having? Uh, you know, the fact that the federal government has so much money to put into the pile. Uh, for education, and that's, you know, a lot of the argument here. Uh, I know that conservatives in my state would love to see the federal government just not have that money and the states keep that money and do with it as they please in their in their states. Is that what liberals are contending uh, be done? Because uh, I imagine states like mine and states like Texas and, say, Oklahoma are going to spend that money in such a way that we may not be super happy with. And they're certainly not going to give a damn about anybody's common core of, uh, of education standards. I, I don't know. I just think that's a super interesting dynamic that seems to be coming out of this conversation. And, you know, it's, it's, it's also interesting to me that it's coupled with another unholy alliance of liberals and conservatives in this whole uh, teaming up against federal funding by opting out of testing. You know, most of the people here in my community who are against uh, the testing and are opting out their children are pretty hardcore conservative folks whose main motivation seems to be, you know, tearing down public schools. And I find it super interesting that liberals are kind of jumping on the opt-out wagon and saying, hey, let's opt out uh, in order to uh, have an effect on these high-stakes testing when a very first thing that's going to happen with that is your school will lose money. Anyway, keep up the good work. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And before I get to Chuck's comments... I want to play something from a few days ago. Chris from Colorado Springs called in. He was asking about education policy, and in the middle of his comment, he said this. One of the things your show has taught me, Jay, is that a poor argument is an argument that doesn't offer a solution after the criticism is made. That fascinated me, and I meant to respond to it before, but I just forgot. I, I was intrigued because he says he learned something from me that I don't actually believe in myself. I think it is perfectly acceptable to criticize a problem of any kind without simultaneously presenting a solution. A criticism is usually the beginning of the conversation, like, hey, things seem to be pretty messed up here, what should we do to change it? I mean, of course, solutions are great, shout them out if you got them. I just don't think you have to have them in order to be part of the conversation and, you know, and add real value to it. Now, with that in mind, 
let's tackle educational funding. Chuck was saying that education funding was tied to property taxes in a somewhat progressive effort to put the onus on those most able to pay. And I have no idea what the history of the educational funding system is, how it got tied to property taxes, and I don't even have a problem assuming that the policy was put in place with the best of intentions. But the unfortunate result is that basing local school funding on local property taxes means that rich neighborhoods get well-funded schools while poor neighborhoods get poorly funded schools. It is not rocket science and it is playing itself out across the country. But to put a finer point on it, I found an article in the New York Times business section titled In Public Education, Edge Still Goes to Rich by Eduardo Porter. So it says, in part, the United States is one of few advanced nations where schools serving better-off children usually have more educational resources than those serving poor students. According to research by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, among the 34 OECD nations, only in the United States, Israel, and Turkey do disadvantaged schools have lower teacher-student ratios than those serving more privileged students. Andreas Sleicher, who runs the OECD's International Educational Assessments, put it to me this way, quote, The bottom line is that the vast majority of OECD countries either invest equally into every student or disproportionately more into disadvantaged students. The U.S. is one of the few countries doing the opposite, unquote. The inequity of education finance in the United States is a feature of the system, not a bug, stemming from its great degree of decentralization and its reliance on local property taxes. So conservatives may have all sorts of reasons that they object to funding public schools in general or imposing high-stakes testing and all of those things, and all of their reasons may be completely different from anything an average progressive would believe in. But it should be clear that it is not a progressive value to maintain a system like we have that is unbalanced and privileges some students over others based on the income of their parents. Now, since I didn't have a ready-made answer to the question of, well, if property taxes aren't a good way of funding schools, then how should we do it? I shot off an email to Sally from San Francisco, who we heard in an absolutely brilliant voicemail in the previous episode where she nailed it on analyzing the big picture of fundamental problems we need to solve to really fix our educational system. I asked if school funding should just come from the general budget or if there was a better idea out there that we should advocate for, and here's what she said. In Vermont, when Howard Dean was governor, he passed a controversial measure that equalized education funding across the state, with districts prohibited from raising separate funds and instead having all monies filter in through the central government. At the time, opponents said that the entire state would suffer, loudest complaints from the richest towns like Stowe. But now that it has been 10 years or more, it is clear that Vermont has probably the best funding structure for schools, with more consistency from community to community. I think that taking into account cost of living, etc., Vermont has probably the highest per-pupil spending and, not surprisingly, best student outcomes. Bam. So even though I would think it's okay to criticize the existing system without having a solution already handy, there's one example for you anyways. Now, as for opting out of testing and risking having funding cut by the federal government, as Chuck was pointing out, that argument makes about as much sense to me as arguing that a group of workers being abused by their management shouldn't form a union and strike because they wouldn't get paid for the days they're striking. 
The point of opting out is to force the federal government to blink, making them rethink their testing policy while making it politically impossible for them to actually withhold funding despite their supposed rules about the testing mandate. I hope that clears things up for everyone. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our sad stories And wonder what we're missing Past all the sad stories and wonder what we're doing.